Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Although I do not uh, endorse Mr. McCann's view of the canine species. And this has been a long time. I actually owned this record in college. Do you have any idea how long ago I was in college? And actually, for uh, three years, I roomed with a, uh, a man named Ken Jennings, not the star of Jeopardy. Uh, and we were kind of an odd couple. He was a black football player. I was a white non-football player. And this is the only record I owned that he could stand. <laughs> and I don't blame him. In retrospect, he was right and I was wrong. Anyway, that's not the point of this show. The point of the show is for you to call in. Uh, it's an all-calls show today. We call it Ask or Tell Me Anything. You can ask me things. You can tell me things. I'd rather that you told me things, but you could ask me things. And the number to call is 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-WNPR. 9677. So 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. I have to say that because I actually kind of found it difficult to read over the years, I've reconfigured the software in the studio that we use to sort of tell one another about the calls. And it's possible I've broken it. Um, so in which case, I won't even know if you're calling. But there is somebody waiting to um, to take your calls. Uh, his name is Jonathan McPants. Say hi to him. Meanwhile, let me tell you, let me just talk about a couple of things that are on my mind because I either don't have any calls right now or I broke the thing. <laughs> um, so one of them has to do with, okay, I'll do the easy one. First of all, I'm assuming a lot of people are going to want to call up about the hearings. Uh, I, I watched the hearing uh, yesterday. I mean, these things are spellbinding. They are, I mean, okay, I'll talk about this first. So I think you have to give this committee, uh, the House Committee on the uh, January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, I think you have to give them some credit here for A, understanding, and we're going to do a whole episode about this, but they they seem to have understood that things like this take place on television. Uh, 
I mean, most of us weren't in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. Most of us will not experience all of this stuff in any way other than on television. It's kind of the main, I mean, I work in radio, so I shouldn't say that, but um, the main way of communicating about something like this, and probably the best way, is television. Because there's, of course, this is an unusual situation. It may not turn out to be chronically unusual, but um, it's unusual in the sense that an awful lot of people involved in this were either wearing body cams or GoPros. There's a lot of video record here. And as you may have heard, there's even more video record because it turns out there was something that – this is almost like the Alexander Butterfield moment in Watergate. There was a documentary film crew embedded with the Trump family and the Trump White House with a lot more access to them than most people realize. It's a documentarian named Alex Holder. Uh, He's got a lot of raw footage that he wasn't planning to use in the final cut of his documentary, and he's got – the documentary itself, and it's all been subpoenaed. I think he had to answer the subpoena on on the 16th of June. I think he's he said he would do that. Um, so um, there's even more. So, but th- that's I'm off the point. The main point is this is a television event, and so you need to do good television. And one of the things that they've understood is to keep it moving pretty fast, uh, to throw to a lot of media. So you know, even as they're talking to witnesses. Uh, talking to somebody like Raffensperger, then they're kind of throwing to the screen. Here's some audio of Trump. Here's some video of this, you know. And and as a result, because people's attention spans are not what they used to be, they've, I think, figured out how to make this more compelling. Um, and, And I think that's very, very smart. Now, the other thing that they've done, which I feel like, at least on social media, people don't seem to understand, especially people on the left, is that one of the things that they've done is to try to kind of valorize and make a clear demarcation of Republicans who did not succumb to the bullying, Republicans who at, at some point in the process said, no, I can't do this, you know. And and so last week, the pillar of that was Mike Pence, but now we have uh, now people like Rusty Bowers, um, and, and, and they are – the committee is really making an effort to valorize those people. And and I think it's a really smart thing to do because, first of all, as Michael Ludig very slowly pointed out last week, um, you know, we're, we're headed for another one of these. We are going to have another electoral crisis and we're probably going to have it in 2025. Um, and when that happens in January of 2025, it's not going to be a problem probably that Democrats can solve on their own even though presumably Joe Biden and Kamala Harris or some configuration like that, um, I'm just assuming that it's, I mean, it's possible that Biden you know, might even resign before then or something, but some, some Democratic configuration will be involved in the certification of election results. But that will be enough. You really do have to have some kind of bipartisan support for this idea. And some Republicans with the ability to communicate to their base you know, no, 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 this is, you know, we're not going to do this. We're not going to violate the Constitution. We're not going to break the law. We're not going to cheat. Um, and I, I actually think that one of the things that might happen as a result of these hearings is that some small percentage of Republicans, um, I mean, it would be a very small percentage, but of some small percentage of Republicans who might change a little bit and might think, you know, I would really rather be Rusty Bowers 
the Speaker of the House in Arizona, the Republican Speaker of the House in Arizona, than the guy with the Viking helmet, you know? Uh, I would rather be Raffensperger uh, than some marauding infidel. Um, and, and I do think that's potentially kind of a game changer. Um, you know, I mean, not a game, a game changer is the wrong word. It would be a, an incremental improvement in the way things are. You know, I, I think the committee is attempting to hold up to, I think most of the talking that they're doing is not to us. It's to us in the sense of creating a record, a record of how things are. Um, but, but I think they're also trying to make a point uh, about how things could be and how things could be better and people who handled it better. And all of those people, I mean, obviously, we, we had the two women at the end uh, yesterday. But, <clears throat> but by and large, all the witnesses uh, are Republicans because part of the point is, yes, this is something you can do as a Republican. You cannot be part of an attack on the Capitol. You can reject the logic that leads to a violent attack on the Capitol. Um, and um, that, oh, I see. We actually were having problems with the call-ins. I think we might have fixed them, though. That's so exciting. So, and I think that's a really good strategy. Let me just sort of finish up this thought, and we'll get over to James and Stanford. By the way, our number, it might not have worked in the past, but I think it might be working now, is... 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. 888-WNPR. Um, 888-720-WNPR. So let me just finish that thought. Uh, and, and one of the things that I'm finding from Democrats on social media is they don't, they don't really buy any of this. They don't buy the idea that Mike Pence did something heroic because they say, no, he was just an enabler all along. At the last minute, you know, he, he changed his mind. Well, yeah, he changed his mind, and he changed his mind in a way that put himself at greater risk than he otherwise would have been. He's there with his wife. You've got, you know, the horde out there calling for his head. I mean, I mean, people who sort of minimize that, I just have to say, how many of you have had to make a decision when, in fact, there was a mob of people smashing windows to get at you <laughs> and chanting, hang your name here, hang your name here? <laughs> and there was a gallows. I mean, you know, just most of us don't have to make decisions in those situations. And Pence made the right decision. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't think we should minimize that. I think that's actually really important. Yeah, I get it. If you're if you find if you found everything about the Trump administration appalling, which I did, too, then you probably are somewhat appalled by Pence. But I don't think that that's the important thing right here, because ultimately, you know, a coalition and that's what we're going to need in this country. We're going to need a coalition. A coalition typically consists of people who don't see eye to eye on everything. Uh, they see eye to eye on the thing that the coalition was designed to facilitate. That's what a coalition is. But I mean, I think on social media in particular, there's this sort of purity test that goes on. You know, well, he wasn't pure. He wasn't pure enough. And so I have no use for him. In fact, I have no use for, I mean, people say this to me on social media. I have no use for any Republicans. There aren't any good Republicans. Well, that's obviously not true. There are Republicans who don't think what you think, you know, and some of them, the ones who utterly succumbed to and continue uh, to succumb to and, and perpetuate um, the falsehoods and abominations of the Trump regime. Okay, so they're not great people. You know, I don't know what's wrong with them. Some of them are just deluded and mistaken, and some of them probably are rotten to the core. But there's tons of other Republicans who don't feel that way. Uh, and we, we need to figure out some way to get along. 
particularly if we're going to get through some of the crises that are coming. And I really do think there's some fairly terrifying electoral crises coming. Some of them may happen this year in the midterms. If they don't, they will happen in the fall of 2024 and spill into January of 2025. Uh, and I don't see how we get through that with a really, really hard demarcation, bad guys on the right, good guys on the left. That's just not going to work. So loosen up, people. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you might not like everything about Mike Pence, but there's something here to like about Mike Pence or Rusty Bauer. I mean, Rusty Bowers, you know, I mean, he said stuff that I don't necessarily believe yesterday. And, and you know, and he's got his religion all completely wrapped up with polity. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but that's not what I believe. But the stuff that he was saying that was, you know, on point was really important, really uh, radically important and represented, once again, these people have taken big risks and, and they've paid a price. You heard what was happening to the people showing up at their houses, uh, people circulating, you know, pedophile rumors about them. I mean, uh, the people that they are defying from their own party, these are people who play very, very dirty and they, they throw inside, you know. And and so hmm, some of that deserves to be recognized. And even if you don't believe that morally and ethically and kind of as a matter of principle and quality, they deserve praise for that. You should give it anyway strategically because, as I say, we need to have a coalition. All right. I'll shut up now. We've got all guys. We've got lots of calls, but they're all guys. So we need some women to pick up the phone and be part of the conversation. 888-720-WNPR. 888-720-9677. I like the, the fact that many of the calls have nothing to do with, I, with what I just said. That is my ideal version of this particular format. So let's go with James and Stanford, in Stanford. Hi, James. Colin, hey, James here. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, so real quick, uh, two things I actually thought of, and they could be entire shows if you want to just – Think about that for the future. Um, one is on the idea of auto-tune and how it's really permeated the whole you know, ecology of music way back from when Cher kind of had her hit, the T-Pain. But now it seems like you know, they've figured out, kind of gamed the system where every song seems to have some auto-tune perfection. So more of a societal standpoint, like what makes that, that sound um, make people want to buy records or – you know, it's kind of permeated our society. So that's one idea. Okay, let's just stay with this idea for a second because it's really interesting. Although I think, I could be wrong about this. First of all, Pants, Jonathan McPants wants you to know it goes back to craft work and precedes a share. And I think, ah. and I could be wrong about this, that Autotune is a trademarked version of that kind of thing, but it's sort of like a Kleenex thing. Like the, yes. I think I think they don't want everything to be called Autotune because then their their trademark becomes generic. Um, so yeah. I, I'm just I'm just telling you that I don't really care. But anyway, we know what it means by Autotune, and I wish I could do a good Autotune impersonation, but that would be hard to do. I think it's a really interesting thing, you know, and and I think it's an interesting thing on several different levels. One of them being, <laughs> I mean, I think as you you're implying, the way in which it's used to call – I mean, there's really two universes of autotune. One of them is kind of the T-Pain way where it really is meant to call attention to itself. 
T-Pain, yeah. Shear, all that kind of stuff. You're supposed to notice that there's an effect going on right. there. It's a spice, and I think basically that spice has now become the meal. Right. Now, well, that's a very good way of putting it, first of all. I like that, James. But the th- other thing is autotune is also used, as you sound very sophisticated about this, so I'm telling you something you already know, but autotune is also used in a way where it's not supposed to be noticed, and that is for people who, in their recording sessions, or maybe even with some live stuff that has gone into post-production, are not on key. I mean, <laughs> that's sort of the other version of autotune. They're not singing right, and it can be very subtly used in the hands of a skilled producer like Jim Chapdelaine. Auto-tune can be used to make to sweeten something, make it sound better, make it maybe even really get on pitch in a way that it wasn't. So there are kind of two universes of that. And in a way, I mind, I agree that what was supposed to be a spice is now a main course. It's just too, too ubiquitous. Um, and on the other hand, I also, but I don't really mind that that much, but I sort of worry also that people will stop singing right because <laughs> they'll know it can be fixed in post. I just wonder to what degree the mentality of we'll fix it in post, by, and, and particularly when that means auto-tuning a vocal, you know, I wonder what that's doing ultimately to people's chops. Yeah, and it's kind of like, you know, if everyone photoshops their face, everyone gets this quote-unquote ideal facial structure, but no one looks human anymore. So to me, it's almost like overusing Photoshop, so no one looks like their true selves. With autotune, I don't think singers express their true selves, and it just becomes like a, you know, a producer's dream of just having a plug-in personality with a great social media presence and good looks, but they don't really have to sing. Um, I, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, you know, yes. I, I will tell you also, i got to move on, but um, a lot of the conversations we're having in our, in our staff meetings right now have been about AI. Uh, and which is kind of not unrelated to this. We're moving more and more towards a place where technology begins to supplant human effort or human reality, even the existence of a person with a face that sits on a body a certain way and has a certain kind of voice that comes out of it. And, you know, that so much stuff moves into the digital universe and then is kind of malleable there on, on a digital basis. And, and so, I don't know, maybe we're going to become transhuman in, in ways that we hadn't entirely anticipated. Anyway, I, I would love to continue this conversation, but there are other people uh, waiting to hear, to talk. I said uh, women should call in. One did. I'm going to jump the line over to Faith in Bloomfield. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, Faith. I think you don't turn left yet. All right, I can hear her turn signal is definitely on. All right, I'm going to put her on hold for a second. I don't want people talking to me while they're trying to turn left. It's just so hard. Um, all right, I'll go over to Mark and Nogatek. Hi, Mark. You're on the air. Hey, Kyle. I was just listening to your previous conversation, and it's uh, kind of ironic that you mentioned craft work because that was the last concert I saw last week at College Street Music Hall, and the next concert, I'm scheduled to see is Lyle Lovett and his large band. So I'll be hearing actual human voices uh, in August. Uh, Where where, where are you going to see Lyle? Where is he he performing? I don't even know. The Ridgefield Playhouse in August. That'd be a good place to see him. I I will say that I I have had experiences watching Lyle Lovett and his large band that are 
for me, kind of religious experiences. I mean, mm-hmm. not incidentally, they do play a lot of actual gospel music, a lot of right. uh, or, or gospel-ish music that Lyle has written to kind of mimic the music he grew up with. But um, but there's just something else that goes on there. So I, I envy you. But yeah, that's sort of yeah. two extremes, right? The the yeah. the, the the technophilia of craftwork versus the you know intentioned earthiness of Lyle Lovett. Absolutely. I've seen Lyle uh, in his large band six times, uh, so wow. I can't, can't wait. Can't wait yeah. to see him. But the reason I called is because I would like to ask you to open an envelope. I don't have one today. Oh, no. I know. I no know. envelope. No, I, brought, I, I packed my bag wrong. I'm so chagrined here. Yes, he's talking about Mr. Carp envelopes. They come. They're sealed. They're full of clips, and so, sometimes I'll open one at the behest of a listener and then try to talk about what's in them, and I don't have one with me today. I'm so chagrined. Please call back and make that request the next time we do it. I certainly will. Right. And meanwhile, it was fun talking to you about music. All right. I wonder if Faith has concluded her left turn. Let's see how Faith's uh, journey across Connecticut is going right now. Uh, Hi, Faith. Hi, Colin. I actually pulled over and turned my car off so that uh, I could chat with you. I'm so much more relaxed. I'm so glad you did that. (laughs) Thanks. Listen, I just I wanted to say a couple of things. Also, having been riveted by um, the, the hearings and in particular yesterday, I, I thought was just enormously compelling. I do want to say one thing about Mike Pence. I, I think you're right. On January 6th, he did the right thing. I guess I'm concerned that leading up to January 6th, you know, not exactly sure where he was or what he was doing um, when we knew that the the landscape of what was occurring was really being laid for 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 weeks and weeks and weeks. And I guess the second thing about him is that you know he's been virtually silent except when his name uh, really got invoked, you know, at last week's hearing, and then he comes out and says something you know relatively benign. Um, so yes, on January sixth, he did the right thing and stepped up and stayed at the Capitol to you know to uh, certify the votes, and and that's all great. But but I think that there's going to be a lot of parentheticals to that. Oh yeah, um, and I think that's fair. I think it's fair to have the parentheticals and say, look, yeah, I, I mean, I, I do feel as though we still don't know the entire story of that. I mean, we know via Woodward and Costa a little bit about the idea that he he contacted Dan Quayle, which obviously is kind of funny. Right. Uh, but Dan, Dan Quayle also gave him very appropriate advice about what to do. You know, I, and, and to all that, first of all, I, I don't ultimately really care that much one way or another what I think about Mike Pence in, say, the, you know, month and a half preceding January 6th. Um, and it could be, I mean, I think it's a very reasonable pro- proposition to say he understood that he probably ought to not make it too clear until the last minute that he wasn't going to do w- what Trump wanted him to do because we've seen how how vengeful Trump was right. when he did realize what was happening. If 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 Trump, if Pence had said to Trump, you know, sometime around Christmas, I, I'm not going to, I just so you know, I am not going to do something illegal. I'm not going to do, I'm not going to decertify. You should just know that. I think Trump would have spent the next, you know, the ensuing month trying to figure out how to take Pence out, uh, take him out of right. the equation, that is. And and so it might have been kind of smart uh, to keep whatever you're th- you were thinking to yourself. I think the other thing is, and I'm not making excuses for Mike Pence at all, but, you know, Counter, a vice president openly countermanding a presidential order is a thing that essentially doesn't happen in American history. You have to go way back to find, at least in my mind, I have to go way back to think of anything that might even 
resemble something like that, that it's, it's so clearly not a thing that you do. So to do it, you have to feel like you're on extraordinarily high moral ground and high policy ground uh, and high constitutional ground. And so, you know, it isn't it wasn't a small thing to do that. So if it took him a little while and if he had to talk to Quayle and say, you know, I'm getting a lot of pressure to do this. I mean, do I have to do it? Should I do it? You know, I sort of get that a little bit knowing who he is. Doesn't mean I would ever vote for Mike Pence for president or anything. But, you know, within the yeah. confines of this, I kind of get it. Sure. I, I, I don't disagree. And, and there may have been a whole lot more strategy for him, you know, just keeping, you know, a low prof profile, certainly before January 6th. I think after January 6th, I think the silence has been, you know, interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. Want, yeah. And I do also want to say that yesterday, you know, the hearing with, you know, the, the hearing Shea Moss and her mother's story, I don't know how we're not talking about just the the institutional racism of targeting, you know, you know, black women in this case, um, but also that this idea that they were passing crack cocaine, which just is one more indication of, um, you know, just dispiriting uh, black people. I don't know how this is not a race crime, um, what the president of the United States and his minions did to those women. Uh, I thought it was just wrenching. Uh, watching yeah. them talk, watching her talk about what they had gone through. Uh, I just uh, it was very, very, very hard to listen to. And of course, the other part of that is they're not election workers anymore. And they say none of the people they worked with are election right. workers anymore, which means that right. the kind of people who would make the choices that they made are not necessarily around at those posts anymore. And right. that's a big problem. Faith, I've got to go. I've got to grab you. a break right Thanks, here. Colin. Drive defensively uh, and all that kind of stuff. And we will take a break and then we will be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. The sheriff disappeared. in the passenger 
passenger seat eating melon and spitting out the seeds feeling happy to be alone but still turning a saxophone is cold as stone kind of like The other great thing about Ask or Tell Me Anything shows is I get to pick out all the music. <laughs> so, like, I'm always hearing things that make me happy. All right. So, a lot of people are calling in what to do, what to do, what to do. Well, you know, I think we have to take Paul's call here just because it's uh, because it could be upsetting. Uh, I think that's maybe a good reason to take. Hi, Paul. Is it you? Hi, Paul from New Hartford. Hey, how you doing, Colin? Okay. Um, before I get into the conversation, I want to preface it by saying that I listen to you guys all day at work, so I have to listen on headphones. And that's why this um, particular subject is sort of near and dear to me. <laughs> I've noticed in the recent past that on-air broadcast uh, personalities have fallen into this habit when they're speaking to really emphasize when they breathe in. Like and and the the worst case of that is Mary Louise Kelly and listen as a reporter I think that she's great I mean anybody who can get on Il Duce's nerves so much so that he calls her out specifically is you know tops in my book but when I listen to her she she'll be talking long and all you hear is <gasps> <laughs> and honest to God it's getting to the point where I'd almost rather listen to fingernails on a blackboard it, it just affects me so viscerally having that in your ear I, I assume you've got um earphones on I do too now during and, the conversation. And at least one person it was like 10 years ago at least one person has complained about that about me that <laughs> really <laughs> that I do it so I don't think feel like I'm Brenda Vaccaro or something but I, I think I might be a little bit guilty of what you're what you're talking about I don't know Exactly. That's a dated reference. Should I explain the Brenda Vaccaro? So Brenda Vaccaro in like 1980 did this Playtex commercial. I think you can still find it online where she, she just – you could just hear her inhaling all the, all the time, maybe kind of the way that you described. It seems a little bit like a, a headphone problem. Um, like, you know, if you're listening to headphones, you can hear all kinds of stuff that the average person doesn't right. hear. But, uh, right. but, but I feel your pain anyway. And I don't yeah, know what to do sure. about it. What, could, what, would, what, are, what would a remedy be? I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, I, and, and I don't, like I said, it, it almost seems that there are some uh, of your, unfortunately, um, your uh, co-workers there that have kind of fallen into that pattern, I think, a little bit. And I don't know whether or not in broadcasting schools, it's, like to me, the thing is, is it's, it's really unprofessional besides being uh, irritating. I mean, you, you listen to previous broadcasts of Walter Cronkite or McNeil Lair, and you never hear him, you know, doing that. Yeah, but between, do you listen you to know? them with, with first of all, they're talking in, into different kinds of mics, and you're probably not wearing headphones. I, this is kind of an interesting question. I will tell you one thing, because McPants is making this point, that when you hear, like, This American Life, you probably don't hear that. And the reason right. that you do, and you probably don't hear it with Terry Gross either. And that's because right. these shows are typically not live. And and so 
with a taped show, with a recorded show, McPants might go in and cut out an annoying breath or, or two or more because that's one of the things you can do in post. We're kind of back to the original call with James about auto-tune. In a way, this is how you know something's live is that there are like annoying ticks and stuff that are not suppressed by you know people working in post. But anyway, I feel your pain, Paul, and I am going to take a breath right now. See, that was a nice quiet breath, I think. And now I'm going to let it out. And I have to go talk to some other people. I, but I, I'm so glad he called about that. I mean, that really could be a thing. Who knows? Let's go talk to Christina. Uh, Christina is in Avon. Hi, you're on the air. Oh, you're Christine. I'm sorry, Christine. Uh, that's right. I hated it when little old ladies in my hometown call me Christina. Did they, um, did they breathe in kind of a funny way? Did they say, Christina. Yeah, okay. and they yeah. had bad breath too. Yeah, so, yeah. No, I you hate know, that. Um, <laughs> but they were nice. Um, you know, I grew up out west, and I have to say that Rusty Bowers, though I don't agree with his politics, kind of reminded me of my dad. And, you know, just the kind of guy who was in the center aisle for the most part, and just, well, it, you know, he's probably a little too young, unfortunately, now to be part of the great, greatest generation. But kind of that had that feel of somebody who did, ha- you know, even though he's a Trump voter, that he had a moral center uh, to a certain extent that when it really came right down to it, he could, you know, he could not veer from that. Um, so, yeah, he just really reminded me of my father. I bet you're, yeah, your dad sounds, yeah, your dad sounds like the salt of the earth and the backbone of the republic. And I I do feel like one of the things that Bauer said, and he apparently wrote it in his diary, too, but he said it yesterday, I wanted Trump to win. I wanted a Republican victory, but I wasn't willing to cheat to get it. And and I feel like when he says that, and then people go, rhino, you're a rhino, I'm thinking, are you saying like, if he was really a Republican, he would cheat because <laughs> you don't want to say that. That doesn't right. sound good. But but that I thought that was profound, too. I wanted Trump to win. I wouldn't cheat. I just wasn't willing to cheat to get that result. I mean, you know, how do you argue with that? Yeah. Yeah, he was really good at kind of saying where he was. Right. He know, knew where he was coming from there. And uh, I think it was, uh, as you said at the beginning of the show, uh, the committee is kind of, is doing a pretty effective job. I don't know whether people are paying that much attention to it, but I think they are doing a pretty good job of saying this isn't just about Democrats versus Republicans or progressives versus you know conservatives. This is about you know, what this country is about and what democracy is about. And what's at you know what's at risk here? Yeah, and you know what? So. I'm going to have to let you go here in a second. But one thing I wanted to point out too was the day of the, that they went through all the Pence stuff last week. Um, Aguilar, Pete Aguilar, who was the person kind of conducting that questioning that day, it was like at the end, it was almost like he had almost forgotten to do this, and maybe even some aide cued him because, like, right near the end, he said, he suddenly said, "Oh, you got to talk about your faith. You got to talk about praying that day and, and Bible uh, verses." Yeah. And they suddenly start talking about all the prayers and Bible verses and stuff. And I think that's very intentional. To he, he's basically once again saying to a very religious conservative base, some tiny fragment of which might be watching these hearings, 
That's who these guys are. These are the guys who pray before they make a decision. These are guys who email each other relevant Bible verses from the book of Daniel and from Timothy, you know, to shed light on what they're about to do. Do you want to be on that side or do you want to be on the side of the guy in in the bus with Billy Bush talking about what he's going to do to women? Um, You know, whose side do you want to be on here? And, And I thought that was very clever and it wasn't directed at us. It was really directed at Republicans watching. All right. That actually might lead to uh, Ann's call, and then we'll have to take another break. Uh, The show is flying along here. We always need more time than we've got. Uh, Here's Ann in East Haddam. Hi. Hi, Colin. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, It's a slightly um, unformed thought. However, I was going to say, and it is really about what you were just speaking of, that the religious quality of a lot of the comments I've been watching during the hearings – were slightly off-putting to me. However, not being wanting to be critical of anybody's faith, I thought that the really interesting thing is that this might give people pause who can say, I can be religious without buying Trumpism hook, line, and sinker. And I thought that that was just a very... And I don't want to be so cynical as to say this is completely strategic. I just think it's a moment of pause. I, I think it is strategic on the part of Benny Thompson and Aguilar and a lot of the other people and probably Cheney to a certain degree, too. I mean, I think it's a strategic uh, – they're going to great lengths to make sure that message gets out. That I would even slightly rumple what you just said a little bit and say I think what they're really saying is it's way easier to be religious and opposed to Trump than it is to be religious and in favor of Trump. You have to do a lot more gymnastics uh, on the latter score than on the former. So, and I think they, I think they want that message to get across. And I think you know, for people who either aren't religious or are parts of you know much more liberal mainline Protestant churches or whatever, you can forget that people. Of, of great faith. You know, sometimes that religion drives people to do really appalling things or try to impose their, their religious convictions on, on people who don't have those convictions. And I get all the perils of, of, of religion and I, I get all the sort of Richard Dawkins, uh, Christopher Hitchens stuff about it. But sometimes religion makes people do the right thing too. You know? And it's, exactly. it's not that big an exception either. I mean, a lot of times religion is why you do the right thing. And I mean, I think about, well, no, I don't have time to tell that story. You know what we, we should do? Let's, let's take Tom and then we'll go to a break. How's that? I don't even know who I'm at addressing with my question. Uh, here's Tom in, we have two Toms. Here's Tom in Newington. Hi, Tom. Hey, Colin. I'm glad the caller before last brought the, uh, it's kind of a, a trite subject, but you had a show um, about um, the way people speak and how it changes. and. Mm-hmm. I didn't get to hear it, so I just, this new thing, this voice fry, um, I don't know if you've heard about that. Vocal fry, yeah, vocal fry's been around for a while. Yeah, I'm aware of it. I mean, when something seems forced, I'm I'm about your age, and first there was this upspeak, you know, and I'd go to lectures or something, and, and when somebody was doing that, it was nails on a blackboard. It just seemed forced. I don't, I don't know the purpose of it. Maybe it is because I'm getting old, but there's a, and she's a, a great lady, like a, a woman on NPR. She, she, I can't even imitate it, she, she, but she sounds like a frog croaking, you know, like when she, NPR radio, you know, and, and it just seems so forced. 
And it's like, where did I, I know it came from New, New York University or something, they said. <laughs> I, but, didn't, uh, I didn't realize Vocal Fry had a definite origin. Yeah, so, I mean, first of all, some of this is us getting old. As people, as gener- generational cohorts churn as they turn over, you know, people talk differently. People do things differently. We spoke in ways that really annoyed our parents. So those of us who are baby boomers, uh, the way that we talked in the 60s was in designed in certain ways to annoy the previous generations. So, I mean, we should have some awareness about all that. And, and the vocal fry, if people don't understand what it is, I don't know if I can really recreate it myself. But basically what happens is the speaker either intentionally or as an affectation that they've lost track of and are no longer aware of, kind of lets the air run out of their voice. So at the end, they're kind of, uh, I can't do it. I'm, I, I'm not a natural um, vocal fry cook, apparently. But but it's, it is that sort of croaking gurgle at the end of a voice. And basically, I think a speech pathologist would tell you that what's happening is that there's no, there isn't the same amount of air supporting the the words the the there isn't enough air uh, there isn't as much air driving the vocal folds and it it did start out as an affectation i now think it is something people are not in control of i've also heard people fix it too i'm not going to say a name but there's a really really terrific writer about culture who we used to have on our show uh, and she really had a vocal fry problem so much so that it was a distraction I mean, it be whether it should have been or shouldn't have been, whether it's sexist or generationalist to care about it, it really was kind of a distraction. It was just so pronounced. And, and I hear her now on other shows, and she's fixed it. So I think people can be coached out of it. That's the good news. All right. So we are going to take a little break here, uh, and we will come back with more. I guess I'm going to have to put you in your place You know, if silence was golden You couldn't raise a dime Because your mind is on vacation And your mouth is working overtime You quoting figures And dropping names You telling stories about the days you're over laughing when things ain't funny you're trying to sound like a and we're back. I should say thank you right now to Kat Pastor. She's our te- technical producer, makes everything happen the way it is supposed to happen. Uh, also, thanks to Gina Matruda for emergency uh, NASA pit stop uh, and uh, fixing up something for us uh, the way he does. And Jonathan McPants is in there uh, screening calls and advocating for craft work and, and, and looking things up and doing all the stuff that he does in there. Uh, all right. So what to do? What to do? Uh, they all look kind of interesting. Um, all right, let's start with – no, we'll start with Lily and then we'll go to Tom and Torrington and then Angela and New Haven. They're all good. They all look interesting. Lily, you have the floor. Hello. Hi. Um, great music so far. I'm looking up lyrics left <laughs> and right. All right. And also <laughs> a very funny movie um, about vocal fry uh, is In a World, uh, written and oh, directed and starring yes. Blake Bell. Yes, In a Word, yeah. In a World, yeah. That's a great, great movie. Yeah. But my question for you, I'm going to put you on the spot, um, the upcoming presidential election, the debates, if you somehow were chosen to moderate one of the debates, um, how would you go about that? Like, what would you do differently? How would you um, handle that circus? Well, so are we talking, we're talking about um, once two nominees 
or two or more nominees are arrived at, right? We're not talking about the primary debates, or are we talking about the primary debates? Um, you choose. Well, I'll just sort of differentiate. I mean, it seems to me that you know the primary debates will be interesting. I mean, first of all, they're just, once again, directed at kind of a different audience. Uh, I, first of all, wouldn't be surprised to see Biden be primaried if he's still insisting that he's going to run. So that might be re- really interesting to see. Uh, to see that happen. He could have more than one primary opponent. Uh, you know, the Republican field, I think we know DeSantis is kind of weirdly leading the field right now. So I think so much of it depends on who the nominee is. Um, and I would make a couple of things into big issues. One of them would be COVID, and not just COVID in and of itself, but the way, to which co- way in which COVID represented a test of government, our ability to govern, our ability to get useful information to people and to get them to act on that information. Um, I mean, I, I feel as though both sides kind of screwed up a little bit here. Uh, I don't think, I mean, obviously the Trump uh, thing was just a train wreck, but I don't think Biden has ever really kind of swung his leg all the way over this horse either. Uh, and, and I think there are still problems with messaging. And I, to me, one of the things that I believe is, I, I you know, Republicans often t- talk about essentially how they don't like government. Uh, you know, Reagan famously said, one of the biggest lies is I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. I really believe in good government. You know, I think government should work. It should be helpful. It is designed to help deal with things like pandemics. I guess I would be interested in debates to, to find out what they think happened uh, and what they think should have happened and what they would do about that. And then I do think the debates have to be, to you know, very, very emphatically about pinning people down about accepting results of, of elections. I mean, it's I'm saying something very obvious here. I don't feel like it's any great insight on my part, but I don't know how we have this process if we can't get people. I guess maybe one thing I would do as a debate uh, interlocutor would be to say, can we get you to pledge to accept the results at a certain point. You know, if in fact you engage in court challenges and they are fruitless, can we agree that there is a point at which the orderly transfer of power has to happen uh, and you have to let go? Would you pledge to do that? Um, I, I think coming out of the debates with everybody agreeing, at least in a vague way about that, <laughs> would be helpful. I don't know. Is that the kind of thing you're looking for? Yeah, definitely. That's good food for that. Yeah, I think that's key. All right. So uh, thanks for your call, Lily, and thanks for praising the music. That makes me happy. All right. Here's Tom and then Angela, and then we're probably done. Here's Tom from Torrington. Hi, Tom. Hey, how are you doing? Okay. Hey, I, I just uh, following up on the, the last point you talked about, it's a sad day in American history when we have to have presidential candidates pledge to accept the results. Agree. Agree. But um, but we do. <laughs> Yeah, it's a sad day. Um, I, I also wanted to say you were talking about the 2024 election. I don't think uh, either Trump or um, or Biden runs in the 2024 election. I think it's going to be DeSantis and somebody somebody else for the Democrats. I, I think you. I agree with you, and I actually am starting to think that the Democratic primary might be this time more interesting uh, than the Republican primary. DeSantis is kind of in the lead, and you can see now, although Trump, Trump these Trump-endorsed candidates are now the, I mean, the latest wave uh, of Republican primaries. The Trump endorsement may have even hurt some people, and now you're seeing candidates like, like Dr. Oz backing away and just almost scrubbing Trump from their website 
debates and their overall campaign presentations. I, I think some of it's also the hearings. The hearings, Trump just doesn't look good in these hearings. And, and so the candidates are kind of easing away from him a little bit. It suggests that probably he isn't the guy to beat. I mean, it's early now, uh, but DeSantis is clearly in the lead. I, I think the Biden situation is going to be very interesting. I don't think Harris is automatic uh, to get it. That would ordinarily be how something like that worked. But I don't think it's the case here. No, no. Um, I, I've watched uh, all, all of the hearings and um, Thompson is, I think, is doing a great job. And what I originally had called about, uh, I mentioned something like uh, some people are, seem to think that we want to move on. Uh, or, you know, we should move on and, you know, we, we know Trump did it, but let's just move on. And uh, I mean, do, do you is, is that kind of what you're sensing? No. Well, I am sensing people saying that. But I mean, I also feel as though to whatever degree, I mean, you know, here, here's the thing. The great seduction of modern life is back to normal, right? We want to get back to normal after COVID. We want to get back to nor- normal after January 6th. You can't do that. You, you know, I mean, we can't get back to normal. We, we, had, we had an attack on the U.S. Capitol, the goal of which was to interfere with the certification of election results. That attack, as we know from the hearings, was fueled by the goading uh, of, of the president of the United States at the time. Yeah, we can't move on. You're right. There are people who will say that. The other thing that they'll say is, who cares? about that. We've got inflation. Well, yeah, we've got inflation. Inflation happens. We've had inflation before. It comes, it goes. There are remedies. Some of the remedies work. Some of the, It sucks when you have it. It sucks to pay $75 for a tank of gas. Yeah, we get that. But we've had it before. We know what inflation is. We've, we have not had anything like this ever. You know, this of, is, of course, right. and, and right. to me, that's the, that's the problem with that idea. So we're kind of out of time, but thanks for your call. I don't think I have time to take Angela's call. I do want to say that um, I find myself thinking that if he's got a little downtime during the summer after the hearings go away, wouldn't it be uh, great to have Benny Thompson officiate at weddings at your wedding? You know, and he'd say, uh, "We will, we will show today that Tom and Kristen met on uh, Tinder. Uh, we will show today that they weren't sure they liked each other on the first date." We will show that the first time they had sex, Tom was more enthusiastic about it than Kristen. Uh, But we will show also today at the end of this process that they are made for each other and that they will be together for life. I just sort of feel like I want I want to see I want to go to a wedding where Benny Thompson is the officiant. You know, he he makes me feel as though he can he can explain things to me and explain things to me in a a way that will make me feel good about the future. All right. Well, I feel good about today. I hope you do, too. Thanks for calling in. Thanks for listening. We intend you tend to keep doing these things against all good advice and the best standards and practices of public radio. And now I would like to inhale. <laughs> Unlike Bill Clinton, I do inhale.